Hey everybody, we are back with Jointly Venturing, the One This World podcast. After a hiatus of a couple of months, a little COVID-induced hiatus. I didn't have COVID, luckily, uh, but the world did. And so we've taken a break for a couple of months, but we're back now. Um, we're recording on the day that the United States passed the tragic threshold of 100,000 people dead. Uh, as a result of COVID, and, uh, you know, we should honor the memory of those people and everyone else throughout the world who have tragically died in recent months. Um, and remember that all of it, everything that's happening globally right now, COVID, climate change, geopolitical instability, etc., all again raises the prospect of what this podcast is all about, namely the, the idea of world citizenship and how we go from where we are today into a more unified, a more global, a more equal world where all of us, notwithstanding where we were born or what we look like or what we do, share the same citizenship, just like we share this brief period that we all get on this earth. So today we're extremely lucky to have with us Simon Tui, who is um, currently one of the contestants on the very popular tele Australian television program called MasterChef. It's the second season that he's <laughs> been on there. Um, he did very well the first time around, and they invited him back again. Um, and he's showing his extraordinary cooking skills on that show and uh, generally dispensing good vibes to the judges and particularly to his fellow contestants and making some remarkable food items. And today we're going to talk about, with Simon, the, the whole role of food in pushing the world ever closer towards our objective of uh, world citizenship. So Simon, very, very warm welcome to Jointly Venturing. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Good fun. First podcast this is for me. Oh, excellent. Okay, that's fine. That's <laughs> very, very good to hear. Well, um, always said I've got a, I've got a voice for radio. <laughs> I think you're supposed to say you got a face for radio. Oh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> good start. <laughs> um, can start again. Can you, I, start, can you start a lot <laughs> I know lots of people that got faces for radio. Um, <laughs> so, um, well, why don't you go tell us a little bit about um, for those listeners who are not familiar with what MasterChef is. Um, maybe tell them a little bit about that, and um, and then maybe morph into how you personally got interested in in food generally, and um, how you became such a skilled chef. Yeah, it's a must have an interesting little, uh, I guess, worldwide phenomenon. It's completely different in Australia than it is anywhere else. So it started in the UK, I think, in the uh, late seventies, from memory. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a really, really old. Um, you know, show, but it hit Australia in a completely different way that it's done to American style and the British style, where it is really about the people and the food. There isn't that sort of like uh, politics involved and that, um, you know, the bitchiness you get from, from other shows and other master chefs, like, you know, the American one is extremely about, you know, they're very much about anger and, and driving force and yelling and swearing. Uh, whereas the Australian one is about camaraderie and helping each other and, and, and creating beautiful dishes and really working together. So um, I loved it from the very start, from the first season. Um, I remember watching it with my folks up in Byron 
and then making a pavlova and me going, it can't be so hard to make a pavlova and then making a pavlova. So that was, that was kind of where my love, love for MasterChef came along. And then, you know, years down the track of watching it as, as much as I possibly can, I was, I was in bed, you know, sitting up, reading a book with my partner and, she, and I was like, oh, I should really, I really want to apply for this. And she sort of puts her book down and says, right, open the computer, let's start and applied for it. So that was a long, you know, a long story, very, very short is how my MasterChef journey came about. But my food journey came about purely because uh, I was working in the hospitality industry basically all my life from from all the jobs I've ever had, starting in a pizza restaurant uh, in Yarralumla in Canberra mm-hmm. uh, and then moved on to sort of bar work and really loved the social aspect of it. I wanted to become a psychologist but didn't get the marks at school. So I guess the, the next sort of covered thing was to be a social a social um, as I possibly can, and hospitality gave me that sort of that that uh, buzz of excitement of fast-paced work and hard work and stuff, and meeting people. Uh, and then that worked on to bars, and then I moved into moved to London, where I started working and then running an amazing cocktail bar in East London. Yeah, right. Uh, but there was one main thing that really struggled with me, and that was the fact that there wasn't texture in alcohol in in drinks. And I mean, there's always that texture of like creaminess and, and sayness and sort of like liquid and other different types of liquid, you know, velvet texture in wines, et cetera. But it really didn't have texture in the crunch and, and sort of that sort of style of things. Um, uh, and so that sort of really piqued my interest when it came to more about the food and I kept coming back to that. So I applied for my, uh, for, I, I applied to study gastronomy, food science in Edinburgh. Um, and I quit my job in the whole hospitality world in the bar scene, which was quite hard because they really create the beautiful camaraderie and a whole lot of friends. Uh, and I moved to Edinburgh and studied food for a bit and then, um, and then moved back to Australia quickly after that, realizing there was nothing left for me in, in, in the UK anymore and, and applied for MasterChef. And two seasons in, here I am. So there's my life in a nutshell. Yeah, right. And I mean... Were you a skilled chef before you took that gastronomy course in Edinburgh or, or uh, did you learn like most of your stuff there? Uh, the gastronomy course didn't really teach you much about how to cook. It just taught us more about the science of food and the history of it and, you know, the chemicals of it and the ways that spices work and historically how things were used as medicines and all these sorts of different things and obviously farming processes and lack of money through farming, all those sorts of things. And so not really much about cooking. But I always loved to cook. I just kind of sucked at it a bit. I was interested, so I always tried to do it and then tried to make the best I could. So for me, when I was cooking, instead of creating dinner at night, I'd create a whole day where I'd go to the markets and buy absolutely everything and then cook everything from scratch. And then I'd have this tiny portion come 7 p.m. at night where I ate it and went, well, that was nice. And then, you know, and spend my whole day doing that. And I did that with ragouts and I did that with, you know, sort of like fish style dishes. And I really sort of uh, loved going to the markets and touching and feeling and smelling things and then working with that in food. So I was never great. I I just enjoyed the process, I think. And so as I, as that sort of spark in me came about, I sort of progressed that, you know, progressed more in food style of things and sort of got better and better as time went on. And MasterChef definitely kicked it off way, way faster and, and greater than anything could have ever done, you know, on my own. So mo- so are you mostly then, uh, you know, an autodidact or you're, you're basically self-taught? Like in terms of yeah, the skills 100%. that you show on the show, which are, you know, very yeah. impressive. I mean, they're super complex tasks you have to undertake sometimes. 
Um, I'm, yeah, I'm completely self-taught, I'd say. I mean, I learned, I learned bits and pieces from mum watching her cook growing up. You know, beautiful. She was a wonderful cook when it came to like curries and, uh, and, um, uh, and beautiful pasta dishes and things like that. And, and of course, you know, we'd go, you know, beautiful, where's your, your father-in-law? We used to go to his place a lot. Uh, and he'd make the most beautiful dinners. And so it always sparked my interest there. And I always got to see and smell. I loved eating there. It was just the best. Beautiful times I used to go over there and have the most delicious food. And things like that sparked my interest. But when it came to learning, I think it comes down to the fact that I had the same style how I create food as how I created my drinks. Mm-hmm. And so it was this mm-hmm. level of creativity through drinking and cocktails that I then transferred to the food side of things. Yeah, right. Um, right. And that's how I sort of created that ability to make liquid into a solid environment, but through different flavors and trying to match them together. Yeah, right. So chewing instead of, you know, just drinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it makes total sense. Well, you know, um, I've known you since you were a little tyke, I think, maybe five, yeah, or five really or young. eight years old or something like that. And, um, yeah. I still remember being at your house. I think it was a New Year's Eve or Christmas or something, and when you were a teenager, I guess. And Wesley made the uh, the famous passion fruit bavoie, and I think you helped him. You helped him make it, I believe. Um, and I, I still have an image in my head of you as a little kid, um, you know, cutting. I think you cut the the bavoie and. Uh, could prove that it was, you know, top quality by the way that the lip of the tip of the of the triangle, triangular piece would f- fall over and sort of become a wave, you know, with that bright orange color. You know, you remember- it is the greatest memory, one of the greatest food memories I think I've ever had. It was was when you know we'd go to either it was it was either at our house or, or mainly at Wesley's place, and he'd cut that beautiful slice, and it was the first slice you put on the plate, and watch it like a wave on the ocean curl right over and the tip very tip tri- of the triangle would fall, fold over and basically touch the plate yet nothing else would break that's right that's it right was, it's like the perfect you know barrel it was, just <laughs> it, was a, it was a barrel wave literally yeah and i even know now that i've got things for like things like josh nyland who has st peter's restaurant in sydney which is a fish restaurant and he makes this i think it's a lemon tart right i think it's a lemon tart that he makes and he does the same thing so he takes the right. slice off and you can check him on his Instagram and he has this lemon tart, which is famous, even though he's a fish place, and it folds over and touches the plate and he has this wobble jiggle that just takes me straight back to there. So it's oh, that's all great. these years, it will always remind me back to Wesley's time having dinner with him and that beautiful passion for Babois that he used to make for us. Oh, gosh. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah, he's the dessert master, really. Gosh, you know, he's really? also totally self-taught. And, yeah. Well, yeah, and he also, remember, he, I, was, I was down at, well, I was down at yours only, my birthday a couple of years ago and he made it for then and it still did it. He still nailed it. That's right. And he's still making desserts at uh, the tender age of 86, you know, he's brilliant. He's still churning them out. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. (laughs) Pretty amazing. Even during the COVID times, he's churning them out. Yeah. It's fantastic. So tell us a bit more about like the other night when you were on, um, you and the other contestants, a small portion of the contestants had to, recreate an incredibly complicated dessert that involved a white chocolate made to look like watermelon. Yeah. That was unbelievable. I mean, that's something that yeah. very, very few people could actually 
pull off. I mean, it was really, really uh-huh. difficult task, but you pulled it off. Yeah, look, I, I didn't do I mean, I think I was pretty close to the last, last, the least impressive dish out of that one. I mean, one of them broke. That one that I had, that I the first one that stuck the piece of paper and then split in half, I reckon that was pretty close to damn good. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, uh, and which sucked because it meant that the, my second one was just, you know, crap. But it's chocolate work is hard. Like, Kirsten Tibble is an absolute genius when it comes to that. And chocolate work to try and get temperature. People don't realize how hard it is to temper chocolate. I mean, once you get it, you get it. And it, and it becomes like second edge, like making sourdough bread. Yep. But to get to that stage, if you haven't got the temperature control systems in your house, if the quality of chocolate is crappy, if it's a bit old, you know, all these things are variables of what creates bad, you know, a bad sort of temper or even not tempered at all. And then mm-hmm. asking us to do literally not a dish that was 90% tempered chocolate <laughs> to a person who really doesn't make desserts was uh, was a challenge in itself. Yeah, that was amazing. And the way, you know, I've never seen anything like it, the way you had to dip it into melted, two colors of yeah. melted chocolate in order to get the lines to make it emulate yeah. a, an actual watermelon. Who thinks of that? I know, who thinks of that? It was so creative. Yeah. Unbelievable, but so hard. And then a few days before that, you made these incredible um, vegan tacos using celeriac as a surrogate yeah. taco shell. Those looked pretty tremendous. Did you come up with that on the spot or did you already have that in your repertoire you have to have dishes in your repertoire if you don't have things in your in your repertoire then you'll actually it's really difficult sometimes to just create because there's so much pressure that if you don't have a set of dishes around you um you know in, the, in your mind then you're you're really going to struggle and i think that's where you know people's undoing is that they've just not got those dishes you know so people who've been in the in the industry for a long time can pull on those sort of like flavor components and dishes. Um, but that one was one of my favorites. And, you know, it's, it's the most celeric is just such an underutilized, especially in Australia. It's a really totally. underutilized uh, um, ingredient or, you know, vegetable. Yeah. And if you wrap it in tinfoil, if you shave all the, you know, the, the ugliness on the outside off and then wrap it in tinfoil and then a bit of olive oil and salt and bake it for 40 minutes, when you take it out, you know, the thing that a taco shell is dry, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, it's floured, it's dry. But if you take this out and you shave it, like take the, the size of a taco shell off, you literally got this beautiful piping hot, like really juicy casing. And Absolutely. it just adds an, another element of cool, right? <laughs> like totally. who would have thought of that? Totally. So that's the excitement. So if I serve that at any you know, restaurant, whether there was meat in there or not, but you serve that as a taco shell. How sick is that? Like that's just got to get people thinking. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, I love so that. With, with, yeah. um, so without giving any, you know, the secrets away of the show or anything like that, basically the contestants, cause I always test myself whenever I watch it, whenever it's an <laughs> on the spot sort of thing, like, you know, you have to cook your signature dish or you have to cook something that involves, you know, bone marrow or whatever it may be. Do you generally, so most of the contestants already have kind of a, a pre thought out repertoire that they'll revert to in the event that they, get presented with a challenge right they're not just thinking on the on the spot right yeah i mean look we don't have time to think about it like what you see is how long we really get like we get they say right this is your challenge and then they have to do a briefing because there's obviously safety precautions involved with everything we do even though they repeat the same thing every single day um 
so there's that safety precaution stuff, which is fine. So we literally probably get about five to 10 minutes max uh, to think about a ditch, which really, if you, you know, when you have that much pressure, isn't a long period of time. Um, but, you know, the first season's tough because you're living in a house and you practice in a house at certain times and you've really got to build your knowledge and some dishes around there and in hope that the challenge they've got coming up um, will help mold the dish that you've been working on into the dish, into the challenge they've asked. Uh, right. This season, a lot of people have history of, of, you know, cooking in restaurants and so they can really draw upon a lot of dishes that they've either had before, made before or understand the, the science behind how to create food of a certain, you know, dish or a certain varietal. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's tempering chocolate or whatever. So, um, so yeah, so a lot of people would have something or they understand flavors, which is another one. So if you, for example, did do the bone marrow style one, well, what does bone marrow go with? You know, how can we make that into something? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they'd, they'd pull on different flavors. Like you can put it through breadcrumbs and make it really crispy with a bone marrow crumble. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. So right. it helps. It really helps if you have. And we were told pre- um, shows like before the Chef shows before the first season I was on season 11 always have three savory and three dessert in the back of your mind that you can always pull on in a time when you're really struggling right because they right, will be right, a savior right. and it's true yeah totally I mean in a way it's like you know cooking at home right when you don't want yeah, to go totally. to a Absolutely. cookbook you got to master at least you know I don't know I, I hope I've mastered at least a hundred different savory dishes you know Without needing a recipe, maybe two hundred. I don't know. I I love cooking. <laughs> I love. I would never go on MasterChef, but I do love cooking. That's for sure. Well, you'd be Absolutely. surprised if you looked at your, you know, your arsenal of dishes. You'd be surprised how, you know, how many you actually can cook, but you just forget about. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, that's and why we. You read all... a recipe book and you're like, oh, that's right. I can do that. And then you go and do it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I don't know, as with all things, like the more you do it, the easier it is. And there's not that many cool. types of recipes now that I would shy away from because of the technical nature, except for some of those, you know, uh, you know, molecular cooking cookbooks and things like that. You know, I don't even want speaking to really which, dabble in those. Which, I've, still got, I've still got your Heston Blumenthal book. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> I just remember that. Oopsies. There you go. That's okay. That's okay. I hardly ever use it. It's too complicated. So who do you yeah, like now yeah. in the world of cooking? Like, who who are you inspired by in particular? Like, outside the context of MasterChef in the, in the world of leading chefs, yeah. who turns you on I'm, these days? I'm a massive I'm a, I'm a massive fan of a guy called Joshkin, uh, who owns a beautiful restaurant in Balaclava in Melbourne called Tulum. They just won... Uh, Best new rest- best restaurant of the year, I think, from one of the one of the food reviewers. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a modern Turkish. Uh, the restaurant's Tulum. It's just brilliant. T U L U M and Tulum, like in like in the Mayan Riviera in Mexico. Correct. Yeah, yeah correct. Mm-hmm. Where I've been to watch uh, uh, Grateful but, Dead shows. Yeah, but uh, that's so he's fantastic. That one. And then you got things like you know Ben Shuri, who is just a mind-blowingly brilliant chef. Um, but then there's people who just are obsessed with uh, great, like great produce, which I know that sounds weird, but I find so many times when you look at, um, when you look at sort of Instagram posts about cooks doing food, mm-hmm. um, they just throw the product around. 
Right. They don't even think about what, what it is that's really important within that food, you know, within, within that ingredient. And so people like Sean Brock, who is from, um, he's from the south of, south of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he's down North Carolina. He's an amazing advocate for amazing Southern cuisine. Uh, and he's, you know, his family has their own bean varietal and he really obsesses over, over plants and their importance in the food and the, and the, so, cause obviously that was an area where really meat wasn't a huge consumed, wasn't hugely consumed by the working class. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at people like, um, Jeremy Fox, who has an amazing book on vegetables and these people who, uh, I think, yeah, who really focus on the beauty of a product and smell it and feel it and touch it and care for it. That to me is when I get really attack, att- attracted to chefs and go, right, that's who I want to be a part of. That's who I want to follow and learn from. Right, right. I mean, you can really notice a, a massive evolution in the way food is being treated globally, right? In terms of, uh, you know, high, high class cuisine, you know, um, you know, Michelin level yeah. chefs all the way down. And clearly there's a trend towards more sustainability, you know, more properly grown food, yeah. less meat, less fish, less non-sustainable yeah. things. And that's all, yeah. you know, quite a positive development. But still, obviously, you know, the world throws away, what is it now, a third of all food produced or something like that is simply thrown away before it's consumed. Um, yeah. An ex- astronomical uh, portion proportion of, of the food that's grown, you, you know, Often with tender, loving care, not so much though, unfortunately, with the concentration of, uh, you know, genetically modified foods being grown by gigantic corporations that have a higher and higher percentage of the agricultural industry under their belts. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, the 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 parallel development is more small level growers, more organic, more biodynamic, yep. Um, yep. and it gets easier both to grow it and to market it and the market gets larger for those things. So, you know, it's kind of a, a constant battle being waged by the sustainable groups and the, you know, non-sustainable groups that want us to want to patent every single food item. So, (laughs) you know, the Monsanto's of the world, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. We're the ones that you can't actually use a seed to regrow. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, yeah, a huge amount of people don't realize that you, all you do is you wait for a plant to go to seed, no matter what plant it is, and it does go to seed, then you, you harvest those seeds of however many plants you want. Even if it's a tomato, you take the seeds from the inside of a tomato, and then you replant those, and that creates a plant again, you know? Absolutely. And then <laughs> the circle of life that happens, whereas people like the Monsantos of the world who say, well, you can't replant because it's against the rules, and we're actually going to create a a genus that doesn't allow you to do that. And if you don't rebuy the plants from or the crops from me again, then we'll take you to court. You know, so it's just, I mean, that's small growers are starting to realize they've got a voice, which is really quite wonderful. Yeah. You know, the work of Vandana Shiva in India has been, you know, miraculous, Mm -hmm. you know, her work, I suppose, like over the years, she's really promoted seed banks and, and sustainable, you know, grassroots level farming and, and they have to fight back against, uh, you know, the advocates of the so-called, in quote marks, green revolution, um, yeah. where, you know, plants that previously grew without any sort of fertilizer um, suddenly yeah. require fertilizer and with one source that you have to buy it from, lo and behold, surprise, surprise, <laughs> you know, when all of this could be done, you know, by, 
ever-growing numbers of people at a local level. I mean, it's not that difficult if you have any piece of land or even two to two to three square meters of land that you can plant into, um, planters even. You can sustain mm-hmm. an entire family on that if you want, Absolutely. if you know what you're doing. Smart about it, sure. I mean, the thing that drives me nuts is this, this understanding that we this, this thought process that we keep looking forward to fix things through science when really we've been doing it for such a long period of time without any of these um, pesticides, plants that have got, um, you know, that have been adapted for the environment, for a certain environment and allow them to continuously create a crop even though they can't re-sow from the same seed uh, because they think it's better and it, and it stops disease, which we've created our, our, ourselves, you know, we've create these diseases that attack these plants and then we have to create something else that's going to kill that disease and we keep creating and creating creating and then all we have to do is look back and see how we survived prior to this prior to all that stuff and actually find a solution through looking back instead of looking forward and that's where that sort of world you know i think was an australian invention the permit you know permaculture comes into play and how we can Mm -hmm. cycle everything through and create this wonderful um Soil, this rich of nitrogen soil that then allows us to create beautiful crops, depending on what it is, and put our animals onto that crop for fodder, et cetera, et cetera. So, this looking forward is just is is really actually making me quite angry, and not and not really looking back because money isn't looking isn't in looking back, you know. Well, absolutely, and you know, perhaps the dual crises of COVID plus climate change maybe just as tragic as they both are, maybe what the world needs in order to sort of recalibrate and recalculate where we need mm. to go in this regard. Because, you know, we can't yeah. keep going t- towards mass, you know, uh, agro business, you know, food stocks. We have to become ever more self-sufficient um, at a at an individual level and, and at a national level as much as we can. And, you know, yeah. that should be part of the, the school curriculum, you know? Every school in the world <laughs> should teach that from, you know, kindergarten all the way up till you're done with high school. You should know how to grow your own food. Gosh, it would be so great, wouldn't it? It's such a good thing. I, uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, look, I, I want to believe, and I, and, I, and I never want to be a pessimist, but I want to believe this, you know, this pandemic we're in now along with everything else that's going on especially straight with fires we're really starting to realize that there's something something different that we can start working towards to create a better future food wise for us and of course every other reason in every other aspect but of course me you know food which is my driving force so um but i just you know i want that to happen i do believe that there's that it says that that there's still people jumping on that but then on board with that but until there's money for big business in sustainable growth and renewable energy, um, I can't see them jumping on board until maybe the government jumps in and puts some tariffs or some taxes on something like that. But if they don't see a return in funding, then it's the big business that's the, that's the issue, you know. But I think there it's is the a. Qu- I mean, there really is a quantum leap going on. I think in terms of you know yeah. more and more people realizing that there are actually limits to what the Earth can produce. There's limits yeah. to the amount of people that it can sustain. Um, there's limits yeah. to the amount of forest you can cut down before you start having problems and the amount of CO2 you can burn. You know, we're really the first generation out of all the, you know, 200, 300 human generations that have been around for the last, you know, a few, thousand, few hundred thousand years um, yep. that truly 
exists within a, a you know, a, a knowledge base that allows us to actually see that there are there are absolutely finite limits to what this planet can provide us with. You know, in the past there was always the always this possibility of more. You know, you could always grow yeah. more and you could spread out more. You know, yeah. make the suburbs go further and you could mass produce this and mass produce that without any sort of deep structural consequences. Well, there are deep structural consequences that can't be reversed. And, you know, we really are at the point of realizing that, which is a really positive thing, but will we make that shift? I mean, it should be self-evident that, you know, why did every previous uh, sort of civilization slash generation really enable their children to be at least somewhat knowledgeable about growing food? You know, we've most yeah. people who don't do it wouldn't have the slightest idea where to begin. And so that's totally. not taught at school. Like that's got to be at least as important as learning math and coding, you know, and uh, humanities and, and English and everything else. Um, but another thing that's not taught at school, by the way, uh, is the topic generally of this podcast, which is like world citizenship. You know, when's the last time yeah. you you heard about the idea that maybe all human beings are actually way more similar to one another than different and don't shouldn't we organize ourselves along those lines rather than along lines of you know fictional borders and nation states you know aren't we already at that stage where we need to make the quantum leap up towards that you don't learn that in school yeah. either you know you, you gotta learn no. about that yourself not not at school well, you know the, you are you are you know the nation the, patriotic nations world which allows you to be completely um uh, you know makes you completely separate to any other nation is one of the major things that they teach you you know the, the national anthem is one of those ones that you you sing and then you don't you're unfamiliar with everyone else and so therefore you only stick to what you know yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting one and then when it comes to things like food and that sort of regard as this you know i don't know there's an arguing point of food and sovereignty but at the same point there's when people are struggling on the other side of the world and we have the ability to fix that problem, then really is it not being all of us being the same and helping each other out and giving a helping hand as we are from one source, um, have that, and we have the strength to do so, then why, why don't we? Well, I mean, there are, you know, there are still hundreds of millions of people that go to bed every night, um, malnourished and hungry. Yeah. Right. Despite yeah. all the best efforts of, you know, the World Food Program and, and many other, you know, bilateral development agencies, et cetera, that try to push things towards a more sustainable, self-sufficient direction. But we're also kind of losing that battle and we're particularly losing it now with COVID and, and the declining nature of the economy as a result of that. You know, so that's hunger is going to return and famine is going to probably return, which had been kind of kept at bay for quite some time. You know, and that's a really, really problematic development. But, you know, back to the whole question of food and, and, and the global nature of it. I mean, there really are a few better ways, in my opinion, to, you know, promote the idea of sort of cosmopolitan, secular, tolerant, equal, egalitarian societies than countries where you can literally eat food from every single country on Earth within walking distance in some cases, you know, that enriches a society that does not undermine the local 
food culture in the society. It enriches it, and it expands people's horizons. It opens up doors which would never have been open otherwise. And, you know, I'm sure you remember the first time you had Mexican food or the first time you had Thai food or the first time you had Italian food, whatever it may be. It's a real eye-opening experience. I literally remember um, the very first bite I had of, um, you know, Tom Kai Kai, the the coconut chicken soup of Thailand, um, when I was like, when I was pretty old, I was like 18 or something. And it was just like earth shattering. I just, I still remember that sensation. Like, Oh my God, I can't believe there's a flavor like this, you know? Mm. And there's just Mm. so much out there. There's so much out there. And as people travel more, well, not so much now during COVID, but generally, um, people do get more and more exposure. And I think with that exposure does come a greater embrace of, of those similarities and, and, and a real, you know, cherishing of it. Like, you know, like the way you love doll, for instance, you know, the way yeah, you love, gosh, you know, good. Indian lentil mixtures, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it just changes whether you've been to India or not, you know, it changes your relationship with that country in certain ways. When you understand yeah. that, that, that has been eaten for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and tried and tested in every single variation and what they come up now is is with is the you know result of those thousands of years of of taste testing, and it's an extraordinary thing. It's so simple at the same time, you know. Yep. It's such a simple thing, eat. and it's so basic, but it's so extraordinary. And you know, life without that is just a little bit less. You know, <laughs> look, there is there is such a there's such an argument of being able to being able to do this and experiencing because. We have the ability, we have the climate to grow exactly what, you know, what what would be needed in Dal, basically, in a large, mm-hmm. in a, the majority of it anyway, because it is a very simple dish in the first place. And so is Tonka Gai in many ways. You mm-hmm. know, we have all the ingredients. We can grow limes and lemongrasses and, you know, obviously chickens there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so experiencing the, the global food phenomenon is just absolutely approachable. But, I mean, imagine that where even, let's go, let's go now 15, 20 years ago, our ability to experience that was near to not, well, how long ago? Yeah, 15, 20 years ago, our ability to experience those things were minimal. And so yeah. that approach to be able to have that now is just brilliant. And I, and I really think it, if you love something that much, I mean, look at, look at, I mean, I'm going to just do Melbourne. Look at Melbourne and the, and the obsession with ramen and dumpling. Right. Something that would not have been a thing however long ago it was, you know, in, in definitely in my lifetime. And now the approach to it is huge. Mm-hmm. And we can do that, and so creating that love through food and understanding of a culture doesn't make us far different from from that culture in itself, and it just excites us and makes us want to visit more. You know, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's really a way of bringing people together. You know, ultimately, yeah. Yeah. and it's just it's just such a joy to see, you know, the, the masters at it at work oh, in the sorry. in the country that them you know, where, where it stems from, you know, um, which yeah. you know very often is not a fancy place. It might just even be a street stall somewhere in, you know, Kuala Lumpur or Bangkok or, or wherever, or Mexico city. Um, it looks like nothing yeah. from the outside, but then you see how, what's being done and then you taste it. And, you know, it's an extraordinary life shattering <laughs> experience. And it's probably better than any Michelin star restaurant you've ever been to. Can often be. 
can't often be. Can't Although often be, can't often be. they are pretty good when you go to them, when you get the chance oh, to yeah. go to them. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's not good too far. But I mean, I think one of my favorite memories is you know like sitting in you know and definitely it sounds bougie, but it's not when you're there. Is sitting on a hill uh, in Nepal, like um, eating eating dal bhat, which is like that sort yeah. of like three or four different dishes with a with a dal and a pickle and maybe another sort of like vegetable curry, a bowl of rice and and off you go and you're sitting there looking over the hills and you go, this is just heavenly. Yeah, and no matter what it. your yeah. religion is, no matter what your language is and whether you speak it uh, as, the, as the same as the person across from you, the one common language is, uh, is the language of food um, and being able to realize that something is good is all you have to do is look at someone and you can see in their eyes whether it's good or not, you know? Um, and Absolutely. that community is what is just going to bring what brings everyone together. You could sit around a table of any culture, of many cultures as you want, and put food on the table. And if you know when that food is delicious and people love it, the the world is just a better place. All barriers are broken down, and 100%. everyone's got that same exact flavor in their mouth at the same time, <laughs> yeah. smiling. You know, nothing's better. Nothing's better than that. Yeah. Oh, oh, I love well, that. I love food so much. You know, I think I chose the right industry. Well, yeah, and you know, a little factoid that I always put out there when I when I teach my law school courses or give talks or whatever is um, that just puts everything in perspective. Is that you know most people have never thought about how many meals they get in their life, right? Mm, right. Maybe even you haven't, but the number is no, so I, finite it's staggering. You know, so you take really? an average life of eighty, eighty-five years if you're lucky. You know, yep, times three sixty-five. Right times three, less than a hundred thousand. That's not very many. Yeah. That's pretty finite. I mean, it sounds like a lot on the yeah. one hand. On the other hand, man, I would way way prefer it if it was a million. You know, yeah, I'm gonna try and double that. <laughs> I mean, it really means you should never, ever, ever, ever go to fast food or eat a crappy meal. Right. You know, like may, you really got to yeah. make the most of every single meal because that's really one of it's got to be you know a highlight of the day. And for for still, despite all this progress and all this evolution on the food front in the last 25 years, um, still the vast majority of people are not really eating that well. And they're not really focusing on that 100,000 number and making the most out of every meal. For a lot of people in a lot of places, still, food is essentially fuel. And food is a necessity that takes suffering away, the suffering of hunger. Um, But it's not the, you know, this this ultimate treat um, that it can be um, three times a day, you know. And that's another kind of quest, you know, to have for everybody is like, let's go back into that direction whereby, you know, food becomes like a sacred uh, moment to really appreciate what's possible on this planet. You know, we don't need to bioengineer food, you know, we've had it around forever. We can can literally feed the world uh, now with the food that we have and the food that we produce quite easily. And that includes, and we can feed absolutely, that includes everyone who's malnourished that have no food, they're completely um, right have food insecurities, we can feed them with the food that we have right now, yet we're constantly trying to create bigger and better because that's what we're taught. Well, and, and, we're, that's the and they, we're taught yeah. at school. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they create artificial scarcity, and yep. they put a lot of energy and a lot of time and a lot of resources into producing food such as beef and other you know, inefficient f- foods. <laughs> that require huge amounts of inputs for a very low amount of output in terms of, you know, energy in for energy out. 
And there's, you know, a, there's a university at the moment that's putting uh, that's doing studies on on the the if you eat an animal animal based products, what chemicals they have put into that animal, which is obviously not an organically raised animal, mm-hmm. uh, what it is that you're actually consuming in your body at the same time, and uh, you know, and it's going to be quite interesting to see. Well, I mean, we could talk about the question of fish. If we want to get depressed, <laughs> you know, they're saying now that they're, it's virtually. That is a massive one. It's almost non-existent anymore that you can catch a wild fish in any ocean that does not have any trace of plastic in it. Yep. Virtually every single fish has at least a trace, if not a lot of plastic. And they're saying, I forget the exact time frame, but it's soon. You can look it up, listeners, um, that the weight of the collective weight of all the plastic in the oceans will soon surpass the collective weight of all the fish in the oceans. Yeah. I mean, that's also the tragic reality of our, of our planet and of our species, you know, that has allowed that to happen. And that's just staggering. And then you go down to things like, okay, well, if that's the case, then let's look at sort of like a more sustainable form of fish, which is, you know, fish farming, which is just, not sustainable, firstly. It, no. it, this is just going to drive, drive you nuts. It's not sustainable. I mean, you're literally putting what would be migrant fish into a pen um, and then feeding them food that isn't actually the food they're meant to be eating. And there's a wonderful thing that I think Dan, Dan Barber did a chat on TED Talks mm-hmm. about how his favorite fish was the brim. Uh, and then he started wondering about it and wondering why you know he liked it so much. And then, so he went to the, far, the farmers that were making it. This is when... You know, factory farm. Oh, sorry, fish farming was sort of like considered a good thing, and for many people, it still is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and they, he said, so what are you feeding them? And he's like, oh, look, that's a secret recipe. He's like, well, I kind of need to know because I'm serving this to my customers. This is a three Michelin star restaurant, dude, and this is obviously a while ago. But anyway, so finally, he got an answer. This is a while down the track after going and visiting the farm, and they're feeding them chicken pellets. Nice. And so they're feeding the fish chicken, which isn't making the fish taste like the beautiful world that fish is. It's making the fish taste like chicken. Oh, man. Because one of the great sayings is, you know, you are what you eat, mm-hmm. but you are what you eat eats too. Right. And if you're right. feeding, you know, chicken to fish, then fish is going to taste like chicken. And it's not going to taste like the wonderful omega-3s, that wonderful sort of like wild fish that it should be and not only that they're sitting in a confined area where they you know they they discrete their matter which hits the bottom of the ground which absolutely over acidifies the soil the, the you know the sea floor nothing can grow in the area and then on top of that because they're so confined the the farmers put chemicals in the food which then they shit out which then goes into the 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 river systems or it goes into the tidal you know the tidal movements which takes it straight out to sea and you're basically putting chemicals into the ocean whilst you're trying to have this sustainably eaten food, you know, sustainable, sustainable fish. Yeah. And then if the fish get out, they've got, because they're so close, they have this, uh, a, a, like a lice that actually takes, that eats away in their eyes and the fatty, the mm-hmm. good fatty acids in, in fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these then, if they get out from the cages or from their nets, and then they start mating with uh, wild uh, species of the same fish, then they actually don't understand how to migrate because they've never done it before and they cross-contaminate, which means they're putting these lice that is causing the problem onto the other fish as well. And it's just creating this absolute big problem. And then to stop the lice, they put more chemicals into the into the feed and et cetera, et cetera. So it's just this circle of painful crap that is not sustainable food at all. 
Um, and again, we look forward to ways to fix this by adding more chemicals and by adding more processes. And maybe we'll push them further out to sea so there's more current in the water. Well, that doesn't help necessarily either. So, you know, it's it's just it's it's a it's a circle of I want to believe there's beautiful change, and yet sometimes I get involved with this conversation. Depending on what day I'm on and what how I slept last night is whether I'm feeling proud of the world or I'm feeling very negative of the world. So it's it's an interesting one. Well, absolutely. You can apply it to almost every every you know food sector, whether it's fisheries really or livestock or even yeah. even vegetable and fruit growing. Yeah. Obviously, I mean, if you yeah. think of the amount of pesticides that are put on, uh, you know, berries, for instance, um, I mean, yeah. it's staggering, and that stuff doesn't wash off. You know, it's in no. it. It's in it, well, and you eat it, and it's in you. So, yeah. um, you know, the virtues of things like. Things like canola oil are the largest uses, like the largest sprayed uh, crop in in the world. And then not only that, I mean, take it closer to your home, your home, and say almonds. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. where mass trucks of bees have taken over to these almond fields because they need to be pollinated. And while the bees are feeding off the beautiful flowers of these almonds, they're getting sprayed because because of, for what because of disease. And they're so getting, not yeah. only are the almonds getting sprayed, but the bees are getting sprayed. Uh, yeah, anyway. and we all know what's happening to bees globally. Yep. yep. Um, yep. But I think yep. I, I don't yep. remember the facts precisely, but um, the amount of water it takes to produce one almond also, you know, is yeah. staggering. I mean, it was it was just astronomical. It was like 140 liters or something like that um, yep. to produce one almond. And, you know, unfortunately, if you look at these, like, world's most nutritious food lists, almonds are always way up there, you know, if not on top. Yep. So it's a yet again this yep. trade-off. Like it's very hard to have your cake and eat it too when it comes to food. Like you know, pardon the pun, but it's really true. You know, like yeah. fish farms. You know, what a great solution to rural poverty. On the one hand, it makes you know a villagers gives them a protein source and gives them an income source, but it also ends up polluting the land. And uh, you know, once the the, the artificial um, lake dries up. Um, that's all toxic, and then the f- the fish itself becomes toxic from all the food the thing, that you throw in there. It's not necessarily the poverty that, that need the fish fish farms. You know, they're the least of the, the 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 issue. They would happily fish in the on the you know the waterfront or take their small boats out and fish from there. It's the it's for the for the rich that this fish farming is for. In my mind, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. And tell me if I'm wrong here, but the expense that it comes out and the quality that they say it's coming out at. I went to, when I was studying in in Edinburgh. I went to a, a, a fish abattoir, mm-hmm. and um, which was which was quite interesting. And I walked out of there, and I said, "Gee, that salmon abattoir was interesting." And like, that was trout. And yeah, I'm like, "No, right. no, no, it was absolutely salmon. The, the the color of the skin was pink. It's salmon." And mm-hmm. they're like, "No, no, that's that's absolutely a trout farm." And I looked it up, and it was it was a trout farm. And the reason why the skin is pink, or sorry, the flesh is pink, is because um, they feed it pink food dye. Right, absolutely. And they sure do. Them, and people find salmon a lot more attractive than they do trout, and they don't understand. So if the trout looks like salmon, then they're going to sell more. Mm-hmm. And then they cut the salmon, then they cut the trout into a shape that is actually appealing to the eye. You so bet. people buy it more as well. And so, I mean, I think... They know all the it's, tricks. It's, anyway, the rich are getting richer. And they're just thinking of ways to be able to sell it at a better, at a better price. Well, there's, fa- there's factory fishing vessels as well, like besides the fish farms, right? Um, 
I mean, the the unsustainable nature of those dragnets are is just staggering. Oh, I mean, they can clear out an entire you know square mile of ocean a day or more, yeah. and they drag along the bottom very often too, right? So that yeah, is all completely disturbed it forever. Farming. I mean, it's just it's staggering the damage that those things do, and you know, like well, there's got to come a limit. Another story. Sorry, go on. No, you go ahead. That's the other. I mean, that's another story. When again, I was. <coughs> Excuse me. Again, when I was talking, you know, on my studies as well, there was a, I really found myself sort of picking the, the tough topics and asking all the hard questions. But there was this guy who was the head of fisheries for the for Scotland, I think, and he's talking about sort of sustainable scallop farming. And I was like, well, that's bloody bullshit, isn't it? How do you have sustainable scallop farming? He says, well, they the the farmers, um, you know, get given a a certain area they're allowed to troll. And I was like, well, hold on. So they still drag, you know. 10, 20 centimeters under the under the sea floor and tear everything up. Yeah, but they're only allowed to they move from different plots and so they grow back and they you know it all grows back. I think well it grows back and gets torn down again. You know, I just yep. don't think there's an element of people being right. And I think this really comes down to me push you know end up after all this discussion of becoming more of a plant based eater because all these style things that are happening are, uh, are just I just can't see a fix. And what is fixing it is people just making excuses that it's okay and it's not okay yeah and demand remains massive right and growing you know i mean the meat industry is still raising every year and it's in its sales of meat products and you know factory farming is is ridiculous i mean it's not only bad for the animals bad for the environment so when what part of that is right but anyway well you know what they say about uh you know i teach courses on climate change and stuff you know and be you know the number one thing an individual person can do um, as opposed to, you know, society, uh, to benefit the climate is to have no children, obviously, because that person <laughs> that you create yeah. is going to be consuming for 80 years, you know. Um, but by far, um, the the second highest step is no red meat, no more, you know. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I don't think people have really made that link yet between uh, red meat and the contribution that it causes to um, global warming. You know, which is not going in the right direction. Um, Still not. I mean, we, ever since the 2015 Paris Agreement, which was meant to reduce emissions globally, there hasn't been one year, perhaps this year because of COVID, which is, you know, an anomaly. Um, but generally speaking, CO2 levels have increased every year, and they've certainly never been higher. And so yeah. you know, most of the predictions that were made 10, 20 years ago regarding global warming and temperature increases have been... Uh, total underestimates and so the speed at which things are changing and the and the scale of it and the impact are just continue to grow you know whether in well that's the thing if you get an ice cube from a freezer and you put that ice cube on a on a bench and you let it sit there for 40 minutes or 20 minutes or however long you want to sit there and then you take that ice cube and put it back in the freezer it doesn't automatically stop melting and this is the thing with a lot of the arguments are at, the, at this point in time where people say, right, we can, we can eradicate this right now if we get down to zero emissions, but it doesn't happen. It's got to, it slows down like a boat. You know, it can't just automatically stop and go backwards. It takes time to get that reaction. And so when people are sort of saying, like, if we stop now, then there is still a possibility that this will not well, there is, I mean, there, it is irreversible, especially if you look at sort of, you know, the, the, the reef. It's, they say it's completely irreversible. So... That idea of mm-hmm. trying to stop in a few years' time, or you know, in, was it twenty thirty or twenty forty? Uh, twenty thirty is usually the, the cutoff date people use. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see whether that's actually going to create a positive change. I mean, it's always going to be good to have have that, but how late are we going to be? Well, and, you know, global population levels are not really declining, and global consumption levels are not declining. And it took took COVID, you know, it took a global pandemic to reduce air travel, right? Which otherwise was growing at an astronomical rate as well, which is a huge, huge, huge CO2 contributor. Um, so yeah, it's very difficult to see a totally rosy future when it comes to, uh, climate change, you know, even, even if presuming the impossible that we were to cap levels at, uh, what they are today, but that's not even looking very likely. So it's just a matter of, I mean, I'm still, you know, an ounce of me is still hopeful, um, but a much bigger part of me is like, well, it, I think we have to just accept to a degree a, a certain inevitability associated with that and plan societies at the macro level accordingly, you know, yeah. and don't We've make been- stupid decisions in the coming years that will put even more people at jeopardy, you know. So whether it's drought or bushfires or rising sea levels or, yeah. or in- increasing heat levels, I mean, it's a serious, it's serious business, you know, for your generation and the next one to come in particular, you know? Yeah. Um, because, I mean, you know, there's going to be huge parts of Australia and, and, and India in particular uh, and a range of other countries that will literally become uninhabitable by humans. Um, it will be un, impossible to go outside. Um, you can still probably stay inside with, you know, huge amounts of air conditioning, which is yet another problem. Well, which is the, yeah, exactly, which is the reverse <laughs> part of the whole system. Yeah, and you're going to okay. have mass migrations of people, not just from the coastlines as sea levels rise, but from, you know, inland areas as well as temperatures increase and as bushfires increase, you know, and as droughts increase. So, you yeah. know, it's a real worrying situation, even in a country like Australia, which is, you know, one of the worst CO2 emitters per per capita, right, for a long period of time, which has a mm-hmm. government that still believes in coal and still believes in yep. doing all sorts of non-renewable type fossil fuel burning things. Um, but nonetheless, it's a massive place. It's a it's a continent. It's huge. And, and I remember the feeling, which was really shocking. You know, I mean, I've worked all across the world and stuff. I've been in a lot of difficult circumstances. Um, doing the work that I do, but I rarely had the feeling that I had this year when the bushfires struck, and luckily there were no actual fires immediately around us, but there was smoke at just astronomical levels as there was in the city, and I remember this feeling of like, there's nowhere we can go to escape it, you know, like you could drive for six hours, (laughs) and there would still be smoke and at a dangerous level, and they just announced yesterday that I think it was about 450 people died prematurely because of that one season amount of smoke, you know, and it was getting into the hospitals. We have a friend who's an ER doctor um, in Canberra and uh, he'll, he'll be a a guest on the podcast talking about the Hippocratic oath actually in coming months. Um, But he said the smoke was inside the hospital the entire time. They could not get it even out of the hospital. So people were coming in coughing from outside thinking they'd get clean air and they'd go into the hospital and it was all completely exactly full of smoke thing. with the alarm going all the time, right? The fire, <laughs> the smoke alarm was constantly going. You just going to, you know. And, I mean, that's a really horrible feeling. It's something that many people go through already, you know, on a daily basis all around the world. I wish I could escape, but I can't, 
you know? Yeah. And we don't yep. want to have a world like that where there's more and more places where people just, you know, are only thinking about the possibility of escape, but not having that as a possibility, you know? Um, and particularly when climate change worsens, obviously for the small island nations, it's going to be the worst, but for coastal dwellers everywhere, it's a real, yeah. real challenge. I mean, we have, you know, the world has uh, about 350,000 kilometers of coastline, right? Where yeah. most of which is lived on somehow or lived within immediate proximity of. And that's a lot of people. And, you know, if all the ice in the world melts, Antarctica, the Arctic, Greenland, uh, all the glaciers were to melt, sea levels will go up over 50 meters. Yeah. Right? 50 meters. Yeah. Can you imagine that? And that's, it's interesting because because people you know countries like Bangladesh will literally be underwater. There, yeah. there will be not all of it, majority. but a big chunk of it. Not yeah. all of it, but a majority of it. Yeah, not all of it, but a big chunk of it. And but considering, play, like, I've got a sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, like, you know, the the entire southern delta of Vietnam, gone, like Shanghai yeah. and Beijing, yeah. pretty much gone. Bangkok, pretty much gone. The government of Indonesia has already decided to relocate Jakarta, if you can imagine that. And it's already started. They're moving the capital to a whole other island. And that's a town of 10 to 15 million people, right? Um, you think they'd think they're not doing it in another island. <laughs> yeah. So it, And that's just a few examples. I mean, there are so yeah. – Bombay, huge chunks of Mumbai will be completely inundated yeah. permanently. And New York will. And all of Florida will disappear, et cetera, et cetera. Like, there's – really huge consequences on the horizon and not just humanitarian ones, but, you know, obviously economic and financial ones as well. You know, I mean, literally trillions upon trillions of dollars worth of assets are going to be devastated and not replaced. So what happens then, you know, to the global economy and all the rest? Yeah, 100%. That doubt, and it's, yeah, it's a toughie. I don't know. It's just... But we can still do it. I mean, that's the thing. We know what to do. It's crystal clear what's needed to be done. Oh, of course it is. On all of these you sectors, you know, whether it's agricultural. The largest percentage, the percentage of listening to you right now or to the podcast will 100% agree with you, you know, but it's not us that we're trying to convince. Yeah, we need to get, I mean, I, I don't know. There's. I think everybody has it, a little kernel of potential enlightenment within them somewhere <laughs> that enables them to see beyond themselves, you know? Totally. And I think everyone, you know, everybody, you know, very often you hear people say it's human nature to be selfish, you know? Well, I actually think it's human nature to be kind and to be compassionate yeah. and to be altruistic. And if you look at it from yeah. a, particularly from a kinship perspective or a family perspective, there it comes naturally for most people, at least when the kid is a baby, <laughs> you know, um, they're yeah. nice, they're nice to it. They love it. And, um, they're kind to it and they're altruistic and they'll sacrifice themselves for the life of their child and all of that. And, and then, you know, for their additional family members, and then even sometimes for their village and their community, um, up to their nation. And then, you know, up to the world for those who, who see the virtues of, you know, world centric consciousness, and that's the point we need to get to, where more and more people um, do think truly in global terms and pursue global solutions to global problems because, you know, nationalism and autocracy and oligarchy and authoritarianism, all these rising tides that are happening right now, they simply mm -hmm. cannot 
address the the global nature of these problems, you know? And, you know, there's if you take a more global approach, that doesn't mean you have to forego your local culture or forego your language or forego your local oh, food cool. or your, or your traditions or your culture or your sports or anything like that. Not, not at all. You're just you adding, you're just adding a layer of, totally. of, of largeness, you know, of broader expansions. Yeah. You're climbing up the ladder of consciousness and a, as the higher you go, the more you can see, you know, the more you can embrace, the more you can, you know, merge with and see the and value in people the beauty of what of that of that world is is by far one of the greatest things you could you know you could offer yeah absolutely you know and and, and allowing people in is just i mean it's just people who have a disregard for certain cultures of certain people is is because they have no knowledge of what it is or what it's like and as soon as you can teach someone the beauty teach someone respect and love and kindness and how our culture or how your culture or how your environment or how your neighborhood works, the more likely you'll have this open-armed world of, of great experiences and, and be ex- extremely you know, respectful for others around you and for other cultures, which mm-hmm. you would then want to be a part of. Yeah, and I think a lot of it's exposure in the end, right? Like you can read about it. First, first right, of all, most 100%. people don't even really read about it, but at least they might eat a taco, you know, or they might eat a, a piece of sushi or whatever and kind of understand that that originated in another country, right? And then they might have yep. a friend or a fellow student or whatever it is who's from another country and then they get a little bit of exposure that way and then they watch a movie from Iran and then they, you know, they go uh, to a sporting event, you know, of, of a sport they'd never seen before and then it slowly grows, right? Um, but what's missing you know, and obviously, the more you travel, the more you see, the more you engage, the more you see the similarities. You know, are far greater in number than the differences, and then you really cherish the differences because that's what makes uh-huh. travel so exciting. You know, and yep. pr- particularly, you know, the first thing most people see in most places when they go somewhere for the first time is the architecture, just because that's what's in front of you, right? And yeah, yeah there are yeah, similarities now. Airports look the same everywhere, which just proves the point that we live in a global civilization, right? But um, but <laughs> yeah. the step but the second you step out of that airport and you get into this funny car with this funny driver and you're kind of suspicious whether you're going to make it to your hotel and you look at all the buildings around <laughs> you, you know, you know that you're in another place. And yeah, um, and that just, you know, all that should really do for people is not just expand their horizons, but enrich their experience, enrich the life experience and make it broader and deeper and more complex and and more fulfilling. You know, problematically, of course, if everybody was to fly all around the world all the time, we'd have even more climate change problems. So I don't really know how to reconcile those two. You know, maybe, I mean, solar planes would be one way to do it. Well, I also think, you know, if we're creating an open border system, then all we're going to do is create beautiful children of, from that world or from that culture who will then teach us and we can create this, I don't know, I, I think maybe if traveling for the sake of traveling is one thing, but traveling to live is another. Well, you know, the um, really interesting thing that always strikes me is that, you know, in the European Union, 500 million people, right? Uh, The the richest region in the world, clearly. Um, 28 countries, well, 27 countries, you know, England's, the UK is departed, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, But they have the right to settle and live permanently in any other member state, 
of the EU. Yep. So if you're born in Holland tomorrow, you can go move to Spain, no questions asked, right? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Yep. And the percentage well, I've got of Irish passports, so I'm so into that. There you go. But you know, the percent of people that actually do it, even in a wealthy region like that, is minuscule. I think it's around one percent, maybe two percent. Is it really? That's, that is it's minuscule. And if you look at the global yeah. population, even you know, they call this the age of migration, etc. And in a way, it is. But it's, I don't know, the last I looked, I think it was 350 million, something like that, um, people who are living outside their country of birth. So that's less than 5% of the, of hmm. the global population. I, you know, most people estimate that number way, way higher than it actually is. And of those, probably 95% do it out of economic necessity or for political necessity if they're refugees, et cetera. You know? So it's a teeny sliver, people like you and me, you know, who who have actually made the conscious decision to move, uh, at least for portions of our life, to countries other than the one we were born in because it was interesting, you know, and because there were opportunities there or whatever, not out of necessity. Um, so most yeah. people do yeah. want to stay put, you know. I mean, that's the lesson there. Most people, most places do want to stay put. At the same time, you know, you know, when we speak about open borders and things like that, um, or just how about no borders, I mean, you know, you can still have yeah. security checks and you can still have oversight and you can still manage to, you know, catch criminals and things like that, obviously. Um, but, you know, go up a few miles and look down at Earth and you're not going to see very many borders. Right. So, <laughs> you know, they're not natural. They're completely no, human made. They're fictional. And who conquered what at what time to be able to create that? To own that space? Yeah, they're always linked to some sort of oppression or some sort of conflict or war. And, and yep. even in this world where, you know, despots, right-wing leaders in the world are talking about, you know, we need to close the borders, we need to build walls and stuff. For people that say that, there is literally no place in the world they could not move to tomorrow. You know, if you have resources and you have the will to do it, you can move anywhere you want tomorrow. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, maybe not North Korea and a few other, like, notable <laughs> exceptions but you know anywhere anywhere you know it wouldn't be on my list anyway to be fair but yeah you're right and they can you can buy citizenship now in about 25 different countries right so there for those people there are literally no borders right so for the elite mm -hmm. of the world they already live in a borderless world and you know the trick is to get everybody um into that category and you know people generally won't move because they don't want to move and people are not going to move somewhere where they know they're going to be impoverished or treated like crap, right? They're yeah, move, totally. They're going to move because they have to and, and then only to a place, if they can, where they'll be accepted and, you know, um, deeply integrated into the local society and where they quickly become, you know, one with everyone else. So, you know... Well, the hospitality industry is a huge example of, 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 you know, traveling the world for finding work that... And, and, and really settling down a place and looking to get that, you know, that visa, getting sponsored by the business so they can stay. I know, I know, you know, I can't say thousands, but I know hundreds of people who, uh, okay, that's also probably too many, but in the scheme of me traveling, in the scheme of me working, the majority of Australians or anywhere that wanted to get a UK passport or anything like that or citizenship was huge, you know, because they loved being there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating uh, how they do Australians. It. I think are... also the so many times it's like when uh, I think a lot of the not doesn't always happen, but you know, giving people the opportunity to do it doesn't necessarily say it's always going to happen as well. But it's the freedom to to have that choice. 
mean, I know a lot of friends Absolutely. of mine who sort of, you know, grow up in, let's just say, a coastal town, which is small and whatever, and just not really exciting. And they grow up loving it. And then they go, right, I'm done. I'm over it. They move away. They go live in the cities. They go live in the big cultural life. They go get that job. And then the, the calling is actually to go back. Very you know, often, the yeah. calling is actually to definitely go back and, and be a part, whether it's the same town or something similar in the same environment, it's a calling. And uh, I think a lot of people who have the ability to go overseas and live that life would find themselves coming back anyway. But the freedom to do so is just the exciting part, you know, to know that it's okay to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to be facilitated to do it. You know, I mean, it really yeah. should be a part of, of all, you know, educational systems to the extent that it can be. That you yep. that at least go for a visit sponsored by your school, um, paid for by the state. If not, you know, go there and reside for a while or study there for a while. And you know, there's plenty of programs yeah. in the world where that's, you know, carried out. But yeah, the vast totally. majority of people can't do it. I mean, still, like you know, I don't know what percent of humanity has never been on an airplane before, but it's a really sizable percentage. You know, yeah. it's yeah. Yeah. most people that fly just think everybody flies, but it's absolutely not like that. You know, um, nobody flies now virtually um no, because of COVID, which is quite, it, it is pretty much just domestic yeah pretty much but i don't partic- as a unfortunately frequent flyer um i don't feel like getting on a plane still no way man no not I, yet no chance in hell and i you know sitting so, on a plane for 12 hours sanitizing won't fix anything no and wearing a mask for 12 hours and well 25 no, hours if you're going to europe you know like um no nah, i don't really want to do that so Luckily, I have so much travel under my belt that I'm not feeling too itchy, you know? <laughs> Mate, I'm dying to go again. But tell you what, you know what this has probably done to me is maybe maybe get me to really learn a little bit more about Australia as well. Because, right, right. You know, we're not, I think Australians, I, don't know, I can't talk for other countries, but especially Australia, a lot of Australians haven't even seen their own country. They spend mm-hmm. so much time going overseas before they can teach anyone about their own country. You know, where have you, where have you been in Australia? Very little. Yeah. I've been to all the major cities. And even that isn't really very much considering how much I could be doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great thing to start. I've been doing lots of uh, road trips all around Victoria, you know, over the past year with different friends just for two or three, four days, you know, and unbelievable the places that we have ended up, you know, just an absolute middle of nowhere. So beautiful, no people, incredible natural beauty, whether it's coastline or mountain. That's guaranteed in Australia. Nearly no people, you know, like (laughs) nearly no people. I know. And it freaks people out. Like when they come from overseas, you know, like (laughs) very often I take people to places where there's no people and they're kind of like, where are all the people? You know, I remember (laughs) I had a friend from Bangladesh here once, you know, we were driving around, the Mornington Peninsula, and he was, like, nervous. And I'm like, hey, Mohammed, why are you so – Mustafa, why are you so nervous? What's going on? He goes, there's no people. Where are they? Where are all the people? You know, did something happen? (laughs) And I'm like, nothing (laughs) happened. Nothing happened. And, you know, to be able to go on the beach and have no one – you know, if you time it right, you can – anywhere in Australia, you can be the only person on the beach or only person in the water – I mean, it's an amazing thing. So, I mean, you go to places overseas in Europe and you go to artifacts, you know, castles, you go to mm-hmm. palaces, temples, the whole lot, and they're all in the most beautiful, big mountains and uh, all this sort of stuff. They're all the most scenic views and great. But for some reason, I mean, well, we definitely don't have really the architecture that, that we're trumped when it comes to architectural beauty, I think, a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got modern ar- architects, which is great. Uh, but then you have these, like, you know, you have the... Um, Oh, what are they called? The 
Oh, it'll come to me in a second. Anyway, so in Victoria, south, uh, south, southeast, uh, the promenade, Wilson's promenade. Wilson's prom, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can go into those dunes and get lost in there and not see a person at all the whole time. And then you all of a sudden see yourself out in the beach. You're like, well, how is this possible? And there's totally. no one here. And it is as beautiful, if not more beautiful, than so many of the places that people go to see that are shoulder to shoulder in, in a tourism world. Yeah. Yeah. So for Australians, at least, you know. Um, yeah, we're lucky. We need to explore more. It's better for the environment. It's be- It's more ecological. And it's, you know. It's really exciting <laughs> to go it's to all really these places exciting. and support local farmers and local producers in the regional areas is really important too, particularly after the bushfires and all that. Exactly. After those bushfires, it's needed, you know, a day trip away just to go to the local bakery to buy a couple of pies and a sausage roll and some whatever, like a little vanilla slice. Or you know, just incredible goat's cheese or incredible oh, wine. God, yeah. or You know, I mean, there are some fantastic producers all across regional victoria you know we're really really lucky you know i really hope this sort of brings if anything it brings what is what has been a uh just a heartbreaking couple of seasons you know covid and the fires Mm -hmm. hopefully people can reach into their pockets and go for that road trip because it's all it's all we're allowed to do and go and spend some money at your local airbnbs you know local motels the local cheese factories, the local ice cream shops, you know, this, totally. these places deserve our love. And, and I would, you know, for anyone to push themselves to just go out for the weekend. Absolutely. And start growing your own food if you can. Shit. Yeah. All you need that's is fun. a veggie box. You need one square meter of soil. That's, you know, 30 centimeters deep and you, off you go. And before yeah, you know you it, think of it as an in- indoor plant, you know, people buy indoor plants to tech all. Yeah. And I'm looking at I'm looking at quite a few now, and they literally don't do anything but look good, you know. So, imagine having one that you could consume afterwards, and then replant and grow again. And it's just it's like this. It's no different to a sourdough starter or a kombucha or anything that you have to constantly look after. And it's a great, it's a great just daily project, you know. To like, yeah, I, I I must cook something every single day. Not must, but I mm-hmm. desire to. I generally yeah, do. Totally. And I also have to get my hands dirty in the in the dirt. You know, in the veggie patch, Absolutely. in the be- veggie patches. Yeah, I got about maybe. I guess I have about uh, let's see, about nine different areas now. Yeah, you know, all around Are you the house. That garlic spot still or not? Oh, I think I have about two hundred garlics growing right now. Two hundred oh, heads wow. of garlic, maybe maybe three hundred, like quite a lot. Yeah, and I've nice. got I've got the whole winter crop in every single square meters square centimeter really is full now with kale and onions and uh, you know lettuce and rocket and everything else and plus all all of our thai herbs and everything else so yeah yeah i gotta spend at least 10 minutes out there every day and you know cooking something for at least half an hour that just you know it also just it makes you more and more self-sufficient and it makes you more conscious of you know what you're eating um but ultimately, it just enriches your life. You know, it just adds a, an, an extra layer of of wholeness to it, you know, rather than buying yeah. stuff from a package every time and let alone, you know, like a TV dinner or something horrible like that. <laughs> you know, like a lot of you people know, buy that stuff thing. and, you know, yeah, they they, they think they have to. Um, but, you know, they can cook. Like, you know, there's an old adage, if you can 
speak, you can sing. You know, if you can walk, you can dance. Well, you know, if you can totally, if you can think, you can cook. You know, no matter who you are. You know, and might- that's the thing. Like I've got a great friend of mine. I don't know if you've met him, but he's he's just he's a brilliant human being. But he is a solid worker. This man has. I mean, he's a barrister, so he has little free time, and he's and he's a new one at that, and so he's in the hustle of the world and and all that, and he just, you know, basically takeaway food and Uber eats as his friend because he has the income to do it, um, and he doesn't give a much about you know cooking at all. Mm-hmm. But he's been stuck. He got stuck. I mean, I know the borders haven't really closed between Victoria and, and and you know New South Wales, but he decided to stay in Melbourne for a good while, and he started cooking. And I tell you what, he was making raviolis, he was making pies, he was making, you know, breads, he was making banana bread. It was just inspirational to see this man who I didn't think had a creative food brain at all to make food that I was, I was wish, I wished I was eating with him. You know, it was just amazing. Right on. See, that's it's possible. It's just, so nice it's when just that happens. Possible, you know, it's, it's just possible. I think a lot of people are cooking bread now, apparently, globally. There's this okay, craze, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, during yeah. the COVID time, like people are baking when when they haven't yeah. never baked before, you know, which is great. No, yeah. which is really great. I mean, we're out of bloody flour. Not only are we out of flour, out of local bread, but it doesn't matter. Like as long as people are really enjoying themselves and trying new things, one hopefully will get people out of their jobs that they hate if they do hate it, you know, and maybe trying something completely new that will help them evolve post-COVID into something they really love. Totally, totally. The daily grind of that, you know, the suit and the nine to five. Well, some people are realizing that commuting is not not all it was made out to be, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, right. And, and people who have to work from home now do, and I think way more enjoy it than don't enjoy it. And um, yep. I think that's going to change fundamentally forever. Just like, you know, shaking yep. hands is probably going to change fundamentally forever. That's probably something from the past now. <laughs> You know. I'm looking forward to the elbow, you know, a little cheeky elbow to elbow. Love that. I think I'll just bow to most people. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, a little namaste style. Yeah, namaste style. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. So um, anything else you want to talk about? Because we can probably wrap it up now. What do you think? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I guess probably new focus of the Sustainable After MasterChef and Sustainable Earth Network, which I'm working on really cool. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that. Tell us about the Sustainable Earth Network. Well, basically, it's everything we have just spoken about in a TV show or in a a show. So we're we're doing a modern world of online. So we're we're YouTube-based, and we're going to stick with that unless some, you know, TV's dying breed, sadly. But um, it's all about utilizing plant-based foods, um, really promoting other eco-businesses or eco-businesses that are trying to do good. For example, seaweed, uh, which is great for the environment, things like hemp, which is fantastic for the soil and also a beautiful uh, source of all the good stuff, you know, I mean, fatty acids and rah, 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 Mm -hmm. uh, along with people who are doing beautiful things like um, sourcing their own clay to make their own pottery with a small little business that are just doing beautifully. Uh, And we just finished our first season, which was all about – the first one was about, you know, local markets and focusing on that. The second was backyard or backyard gardens was another one. I did one with Food Bank, which is a wonderful food waste company that, you know, feeding the, the, the less fortunate and also stopping food waste. So, and I did one on fermentation as well in Adelaide. So there's all, we're really trying to fight the good fight, um, focus on getting people to change their mindset on how they eat when it comes to excessive meat consumption and looking at a more of a plant-based environment and not trying to force it down anyone's throat, but just make it enjoyable and let people know that 
vegetables are delicious as well. Um, and then finally, it's it's um, uh, and I guess in 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 the scheme of it, uh, we we want to make you know this whole world of where we sort of grew up in this in this sort of boiled boiled vegetables with no flavour to be something that people want now. And so it's no longer the sort of meat and three veg, but it's kind of like the three veg and meat, I guess, in so many ways, um, right. or just three veg on its own. Well, you're pretty uh, famous so for those um, those cauliflowers. Yeah, that seems to have uh, kicked off quite nicely, isn't it? Well, cauliflower numbers. So, and there's just so much we can do. We're just we're just forgotten about how good it is to have good flavored vegetables because we're so used to them being a side thought. You know, the whole vegetables eat your greens because they're good for you should never have been a saying because who gives a shit about them being good for you? That's just a byproduct of how good vegetables are. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we can pack flavor into that and also get the you know the nutrients and the and the health that we need from vegetables, then win win. Um, but that's kind of what we're after. So we're about to start our second season, and that's oh great, um, great. Well, we're we're looking for funding, so we're getting funding for our second season. We did the first one on our back, which was great, and now it's time to step it up. So, oh, there was also funding. an episode on uh, mushrooms, right? The first season, yeah, there was. Yeah, yeah there's we're, an episode on mushrooms. You made the that, that lion's book. mane mushroom dish. That was beautiful. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, lion's mane is a new is a new mushroom coming out. What a what a thing to, that is! It's, it's incredible. Incredible! It's so incredible. I mean, it's the size. If you put your sort of like, I guess a normal size, and if you kind of open your fists up a little bit and put them together, you kind of that's the size of it, you know? Right. You right. get quite huge. Or put your fingertips together and create a big sort of like ball, and that's how big they get. Right. And you roast that up, and it's just the most delicious, delicious food. I mean, does it taste like mushroom? Because it doesn't look like mushroom it does yeah it's, if, if you don't cook it it's got a bitterness to it but as soon as you roast it up it gets the outsides get really crispy and then the inside just sucks up any moisture so you know you put a little bit of butter with it or a bit of oil and you just put some marinade over the top of it and roast it it'll come out the juiciest thing ever it's just beautiful and it tastes like mushrooms it really oh. really does but it has a texture of meat in some ways too and and where do you get those where do you get lion's mane mushrooms can you just buy them at the market or yeah, like there's some a few specialty places. shops. I mean, Victoria Market, uh, some places have them, but also Paran Market. There's a mushroom guy at the Paran Market. Mm-hmm. He has a plethora of great mushrooms, and so definitely someone to go to. Right. Um, but there's a guy called um, Mushroom Connect, uh, who is um, who is the guy I get it from, and he's based out of Ballarat. So Mushroom Connect, you can get him on Instagram. He's got a message. I mean, he does it. He has a wholesale called Umami Umami, based out of. Um, uh, based out of Melbourne. So he's always he can get them from. You went to a and mushroom farm, didn't you, during the show? Yeah, Mushroom Connection, sorry. Mushroom Connection Farm is where... Is that where you went to? Dining. That's where I went, yeah. And that's near guy, Ballarat? If you can listen to this, yeah, in Ballarat. I mean, listen to this. He'll, he'll laugh because he does not look like a mushroom guy at all. He is he is nearly, you know, neck to, neck to toe tatted up, um, absolutely ripped like this guy look he's ripped as and then he creates these most beautiful mushrooms um uh yeah so jump on his instagram mushroom connection and uh put an order through they're worth your time and he's he's a he's a brilliant guy and has a great knowledge of mushrooms um yeah that was a that was amazing that episode like in the in the grow rooms i mean it was just extraordinary oh Oh my god there were so many of those lion's manes around couldn't believe it. No, I mean they literally were like miniature miniature pugs. You know, they're just 
they just ready to grow into their skin, but they never do, you know. <laughs> How long do those take to grow? The lion's manes, by the way, is it one? Is it like a one day uh, thing or five days or what? Yeah, it's about five days, I think. About a week, couple of weeks, maybe, depending on how big you want them. But yeah, it, it takes about a week from memory. I actually can't remember how long you said, but I think it's about that. It's pretty amazing. Amazing. They're just the world, the organism of the mushroom is a whole other kettle of fish. Oh, you better believe it. I'm going to do a few podcasts on those, you know, the mycelial networks and everything else. It just really the thing that holds the world together in many ways, you know? 100%. Yeah. And that's how, that's how trees are enabled to communicate with one another. You know, it's through the mycelial networks linked to their root systems that enable them to fight off pests and all sorts of other things, you know? Yeah. So there's a lot yeah. more to trees yeah. than meet the eye, that's for sure. Between between the lycelium, between the soil, and between the bees, you know, the trifecta. Absolutely. Yeah, i got to get some bees next, I think. Yeah, I have a lot of friends yeah, that have hives. And you can do it, you know, in the suburbs quite easily. You can. I can introduce you to a guy, I know this is really off topic, but I can introduce you to an amazing old Polish guy who is um, part of Australian um, permaculture. He runs the bee the backyard bee sector of the permaculture world. And so if you want to meet him, he's fantastic. Um, and sure. he he's got two hives in the middle of in the middle of Melbourne in his backyard, West in West uh, Brunswick from memory. Uh-huh. And then, um, and then, uh, yeah, I just got six kilos from him and I'm now making mead. So an old oh, nice. Polish recipe. Should we go? Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. A few months ago, I went up into the mountains here and uh, to a friend's house who has like, what does he have? Uh, Eighteen hives in the middle of the the Victorian Alps, and we harvested a bit. And man, uh, put on the suit and everything, and it was extraordinary to do that from that the hive. Awful. I mean, that was amazing. Um, and the honey is just indescribable. <laughs> you know uh-huh. what? What a miracle that whole process is. It's just it, phenomenal. And bees really are phenomenal. Is. I mean, the queen, the role of the queen and the worker and the drones and everything else is just amazing when you delve into it. God, you know, and they're, you know, what is it? A third of the world's food supply is in one way or another dependent on pollination by bees. I mean, it's an incredible amount. Yeah. And they, um, you know, and yeah, I, I actually had something to say, but then I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Well, Simon Tui, it has been fantastic talking to you again. And, um, Hope we'll have a chance to see each other soon once COVID's over. And good luck on the remaining part of this season of MasterChef. I hope you win. I know you can't tell me whether you did or not, but I hope you do, and I hope you had Um, fun doing it. Keep your eyes open. (laughs) I will. I'll watch every night and try to emulate those incredible cooking skills of yours. Gosh, we should actually do a cooking session together, you and I. How does that sound? Absolutely. You got it. Might have to slip in some uh, Indian lamb shanks. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, that sounds good. I'm just about to make some kimchi, actually, now that when we get off the phone. I'm about to make it, uh, like, but it's not, not Australian. No, not, not, not a Korean one. I'm using Indian spices and doing an Indian-style kimchi. Oh, that's which is interesting. really, really cool. So I'll bring that over to you. Have you ever done that before? Yeah, it was the last one. I just did it recently. Um, I used, I just cooked down some uh, onions and some ginger and some garlic, the usual, and blended it into a paste and then added all, and then, added all these spices and sort of roasted these spices, Indian-style spices off, and mixed it into a big paste with a lot of uh, Kashmiri chili and then massaged that with a lot of salt into the um, into the Wombok and did that, and it was just spectacular. So oh, wow. I just bought a Wombok. I just ran out and do it again. Excellent. Yeah, kimchi is another food that's kind of totally on the global ascendancy at the moment. 
It really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love the fact that ferments are coming back, which is great. I know, I know, yeah. Because it's exciting as... And people think it's so difficult to do, or or like pickling, you know, so difficult, you know, only a master can do it. No way, anyone can do it. It's so easy. It is so easy. So Um, easy and healthy. Actually, I'm doing a kimchi, um, I'm doing a spring onion kimchi lesson on Saturday at 3 p.m. So that's on Instagram if you you want to watch it. Oh, excellent. So tell us your... um, Tell us again your the institutions you're linked to and your Instagram yeah, address, so, etc. So I mean, everything is actually luckily enough. I'm one of the only Simon Tui's in the world, apparently, or at least one that has social media. So everything that I have is Simon Tui. So my my LinkedIn is obviously that. My um, Instagram is Simon Tui, and also social, um, um, Sustainable Earth Network. So Simon Tui is one, and Sustainable Earth Network is the other. One is also mainly MasterChef based and personal, and the other one is obviously my work work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's it. I don't really do Facebook anymore. It's a dying breed these days. But um, right. Oh, and do you have any more plans to? I mean, you had a, a pop up restaurant following the first season of Master Chef. Do you have any more plans along those lines, or anything like that, where people could come and enjoy your food? Well, you 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 can if you're from India, so or tra- love traveling to India. So there's actually a, a two. I'm opening up two restaurants in, in the hotels in India coming up. Well, it was meant to be this year, which is obviously not going to be until probably mid to late next year. But, um, yeah, that's exciting. Like permanent restaurants or pop-ups? Permanent restaurants. Wow. Yeah. And that, what are they going to be called? I mean, where are they? Well, one is in a, in a palace in Varanasi, which is uh-huh. pretty sick. Uh, that is on the Ganges. It is absolutely divine. You bet. Um, in fact, you can just Google, you know, Palace Hotel in, in Varanasi, and they'll tell you, show you exactly where it is. And the other one is in Jaipur, which is in Clark's Hotel, of the, it's owned by the Clark family, uh, and it's an old tea house in the on the grounds of their hotel, uh, where the where the where their um uh, their markets are, the fruit markets are, the fruit and veg markets are, so farmers markets. And so they've got an old tea house there that we're going to move into making a vegetable smokehouse and. There, it's I just it's it's so exciting. I can't oh. wait. I'm so sad that I can't be over there sooner, but um, it is what it is. So oh, that's amazing. Trying to do other work until then. So are both of the restaurants uh, like your creations? Correct. Yep. 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 So the first one in Varanasi is my my recipes with my training of staff, um, and you know all that sort of style of thing, and getting everyone ready to to work and how how I want it to be done and how they want the recipes to be done. And then the second one, which is in Jaipur is going to be the major one. That's going to be the one that I'm going to be more featured at and I'll be working with and being really a strong part of. Right, and the plan so is to really relocate there for a portion of the year, sort of like that? Correct. Yeah, yep. I'll be relocating there for a portion of the year and also I will be looking at probably expanding from that because I've got a new place which was meant to open up again early next year. So we'll see if that continues on. If not, then it'll be... Uh, we'll be looking at sort of later on in the year to open up a few more if we're successful, and obviously that's the goal. So. And do you have a name for these places yet? Are they all going to have different names it's, or the same name? We will see. We haven't discussed names yet. We haven't discussed names, but that's the exciting. I love, I love that. I'm not great with names when it comes to it, but I think it's going to be fantastic. I think we'll work on something that'll be really beautiful. Oh, but, that is yeah. excellent. That's so great. Well, congratulations with yeah. that. I really hope it works. That's fantastic. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm not one to go talking too much about it because I know that the more I, you know, get overly excited and don't put the hard yards in, it doesn't ever happen. So head down, thumbs up, and hopefully it comes through. Well, I think, I mean, once COVID has passed, then, I mean, you know, you couldn't wish for a better country to set up a eating establishment in, you know? I mean, what a I great place wait. to to 
hang out and I've been to India a lot and I love it. And yep. the food oh, is amazing. The people are amazing. The music is amazing. You know, it's ex- oh. an extraordinary culture. So that I will be really exciting. Film. You want to, you want to be in a Bollywood film as a walk on? hundred percent. Well, you got a good chance probably if you uh, make I'm the right too. connections. Yeah, definitely. I what can see 10, 10 million people, 10 million people watch MasterChef uh, from India. So, you know, India alone, 10 million people watch MasterChef Australia. I, th- I think you might want to do a little um, Bollywood-style dance on Australian MasterChef and then draw you know attention uh, to yourself that way, and then you'll be you'll be in. All right, let's keep an eye out. My next my next my next episode on MasterChef will be me dancing like that. That'd be fantastic. Walking into the studio with a sitar, it's going to be awesome. I can see it. All right, Simon, it's been fantastic talking to you, my friend, and. Thanks again, everybody. That was uh, episode 21 with Simon Tui, and uh, we'll be back soon. Uh, we're recording another episode tomorrow with um, International Diplomat, which is an independent, uh, sorry, independent diplomat, which is a uh, NGO based in Geneva that helps um, countries um, with diplomatic initiatives at the international level. And hopefully we'll be also talking with the ambassador of the Marshall Islands who they are working with so with that fare thee well see you soon everyone bye now you can stay on you can stay on the yeah (laughs) say bye (laughs) bye okay (laughs)